This morning, I want to talk about uh, the practice of letting go. Uh, this is in the context of the second great task, letting go of craving, or as I prefer to call it, reactivity. But how do we do that? How do you let go? You may have been on retreats and you find yourself preoccupied um, with an irritating or obsessive thought or feeling and you go to the teacher, usually a wise and compassionate person, <laughs> and you explain you know, what's going on, you can't meditate because your mind cannot get off this uh, track, and the teacher says, well, just let go. Don't get caught up in it, just let go. Which sounds like a nice idea, but as we may have noticed, even with the very best of intentions, the mind has a mind of its own. And you may also have noticed that the more you grit your teeth and exert yourself not to think a certain thought or pursue a certain uh, emotion, strangely, that um, attempt can sometimes make the whole thing worse. So this very simple and attractive-sounding instruction let go of reactivity. When you start looking into it more closely, it's rather puzzling, rather difficult to do. Now I think this brings us to one of the features of the Buddha's teaching that is very much at the heart of the Dharma. And this returns back to the principle of conditioned arising or dependent origination, however we translate paticca sam upada, which in its most simple in its most simple formulation boils down to when this is, that arises. When this is not, that does not arise. Now this is um, an underlying principle of the practice. So when we come to something like reactivity, what we need to understand are what are the conditions under which reactivity arises and what therefore would be the conditions under which it would not arise. So instead of taking reactivity as something you don't like, a problem, something you'd rather not have and try to sort of just sort of tamp it down, we have to take as it were one step further back 
and ask ourselves, well, what could I be doing? What circumstances, in, both outwardly and inwardly, uh, might I try and establish so that reactivity would be less likely to happen? And if it were to happen, how could I be with it in a way that it wouldn't overwhelm me? My hunch is that when we think of the Four Noble Truths as a sequence of four tasks, what the Buddha is presenting us with is another uh, version of dependent arising. In other words, if we fully embraced the condition we are in, in the ways that I spoke of the other day, in ways that no doubt we're perhaps trying to practice now, were those conditions established, then they would uh, um, quite naturally lead to the falling away of reactivity. Or were the reactivity to arise, it would have less potency to overwhelm us. So the practice of this first task, embracing life, I feel is the precondition, the circumstance under which reactivity somehow loses its raison d'etre. Let me give you a simple example. Um, a funeral. Someone close to you has died. You are in mourning. You gather together with others who have known this person, other family members and friends. And in the presence of bereavement and death, when all of you are somehow in that frame of mind where now you're attending to the real uh, existential reality of being human, death, it's not an idea anymore. It's actually happened to someone you love and that person is no longer there. That has an enormous uh, transformative effect on how you feel about all the other people in the room. A lot of the pettiness of our family politics and this person and that person we like, dislike, and all that goes along with uh, those sorts of uh, close relationships can very often just evaporate because something else, our sense of loss and grief, has come into the foreground. And it has dispelled very often uh, the fact that I really have never liked Aunt Jane. Aunt Jane, at this moment, becomes another person sharing your grief. And in the light of the, this passing, uh, one relates to each other more in terms of one's fundamental human frailty and transience than one does in terms of he said this, she said that, 
I don't like, I like, and so on. So reactivity, in a sense, or this habitual conditioned reactions that we have, um, are somehow undermined. They might still run through your head, out of habit, but they somehow lose their force. Likewise, although this is in a sense a much more generalized approach, is that if we attend to how our experience is, is transient, impermanent, how life is somehow tragic, nothing lasts, even the greatest joys will come to an end, that existence is highly uh, contingent, unpredictable, unreliable. If we were more aware of how none of what is going on inside or outside me is essentially me or mine, if these... um, if these features of our experience uh, really predominated, came into the foreground of our life, if we really saw the world in that way, if we really understood that this breath could be our last breath, that would change a great deal. I feel somewhat similar to the example of the funeral Uh, that it would expose a lot of what preoccupies us in our distracted states uh, as somehow um, petty, uh, rather trivial, pointless. And so although the, the habit pattern would still keep kicking in, you would no longer be so under the, the sway or the power of these thoughts, these reactions that keep bubbling up to the surface. So in this way, letting go uh, is not got anything to do with uh, pushing aside, but it has to do with uh, uh, cultivating an embrace of fully knowing of one's life, which we're doing on this retreat very much. And as you go more deeply into this way of being in the world, that in itself transforms or changes uh, the way you react to your experience. You somehow cast a new light on life and that reconfigures your relationship to it. So we might say that in this sense, uh, that this fully knowing, whether it's through vipassana or whether it's through any other practice, um, already starts to erode the reactive patterns. But as we saw yesterday, um, There's no magic off switch. If, as I think we would probably accept today, that that, that attachment and greed and desire and fear and hatred and jealousy and pride 
are basically built into our neurobiology, then at some level um, they'll always be present. They're part of who we are. Uh, and as I said before, there's nothing wrong with that. We don't have to uh, somehow consider ourselves uh, moral failures because we have lusts and fears and egoism. That's just what this organism does. It's like, uh, you know, considering a dog who barks to be somehow immoral. It doesn't make sense. But we do have a culture, both in our own religious traditions as well as in many Buddhist cultures, where the idea that if you, if you have a certain thought, if you have, feel a strong emotion, if you have a violent or perverse fantasy, there is something, as it were, that you're not doing right. You're somehow to be blamed or, 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 or you justify a feeling of guilt because this is going on within you. But there's no need for that. And I think this idea of fully knowing is very much also about a deep acceptance of ourselves, which again sounds like a nice idea, but it actually can be very challenging. Sometimes on retreats, when the mind gets still, when you find yourself in a silent environment like this, suddenly you can be overwhelmed by maybe the memory of a past trauma, by um, a very violent fantasy or daydream. And you might get the impression that you must be doing the practice wrong. But I don't think that's true. I think it's a, in a way you're allowing yourself to, as it were, uh, experience your existence um, uh, without some of the habitual blocks that, or social controls that may come into play in everyday life. You're opening up to yourself. You're allowing yourself simply to be a witness to who you are. And what rises up can, as we also saw at the end of the talk yesterday, be perhaps uh, deep insights or great feelings of, of compassion or concern for others. But probably for most of us, and I can le at least speak here of myself, most of the stuff that comes up during meditation is not a great insight or a great feeling of love or whatever, but it's just kind of bog-standard mental chatter um, of no great significance often um, that just um, compulsively and rather tediously uh, runs through our minds. It's what the brain, what the organism generates. Of course, what comes up, what arises, attachments, fears, etc., etc., reactivity, um, yeah, what was I going to say? Um, 
is not something we choose uh, to have or to do. It happens to us. And I think the stories that we read of in the discourses of the Buddha encountering Mara, uh, I think illustrate this, albeit in a rather mythic language. When you read one of these uh, discourses, um, it almost always starts out by saying, and then Mara approached the Buddha. And what that, I think, uh, points to is how um, these reactions uh, come to us. They show up rather than being uh, states of mind that we deliberately select and choose to have. Um, in Jungian psychology, uh, Jung describes a neurosis as an autonomous complex within the psyche, an autonomous complex. In other words, it seems to have a life of its own. It's autonomous. It breaks in. It happens. Uh, and so it's not a question so much of, of getting rid of these things, but rather of being finding a way to be with them, but not of them. And I think Jung famously said, when talking about the effectiveness of therapy, he says, we move from a condition where the neuroses have us to a condition where we have the neuroses. And I think that's not too dissimilar to what we're doing here. It's more about coming into another relationship with reactivity, rather than seeking to dispel it. So the first step in letting go is actually to say yes to what is going on. Even the most unacceptable thoughts at one level, if they happen to us, we say this is what's happening. And that's perfectly okay. Nothing wrong with that. And so there's a deep level of self-acceptance, I think, that is called for in this practice. And so we see here that this fully knowing or accepting or embracing is also already part of the process of letting go. It's an embrace that is at the same time a release. And again, the two ideas don't, on the surface, seem to be terribly compatible. We embrace, we say yes, but at the same time, we let go. And arguably, to be able to release or not get caught up in these things is perhaps only really possible when we have fully accepted them for what they are. We've fully accepted ourselves for what we are. And again, as we mentioned last night, at the conclusion of the dialogues with Mara, uh, Mara disappears on realizing 
that the Buddha knows me, Mara sometimes says at conclusion, or the Buddha says, I know you. So this letting go um, is in a sense a kind of understanding. It's an ability to see these things for what they are. And in doing so, that somehow diffuses the power that they can hold on us. There's a passage in the Sutta Nipata uh, where the Buddha says to Mara, uh, I will destroy you uh, with my wisdom in the same way that a well-aimed stone will shatter an unfired pot. And I'm often puzzled as to what that means. An unfired pot or vase looks from the distance just like a fired pot or vase. It seems solid. But if you were to throw a pebble at it, instead of it hitting the pot and ping, bouncing off, it would possibly shatter the pot and the pot would just crumble. So if we um, are, as it were, um, intimidated by the power of an emotion or a thought, that means we've already invested it with a certain authority. It's powerful, it's too much, I can't handle it, we might say. It's overwhelming. But if we could just see it as um, the play of the mind, uh, conditions that have given rise to this thought, this feeling, if we could start to see it in that way, as, as a transient, conditional, essentially empty phenomenon. That is the wisdom, I think, that's compared to the little pebble that can shatter the large but the unfired pot. In the teachings of Dzogchen, in the Tibetan tradition, they talk about how the uh, the kaleshas, the afflictions, the reactivity, um, is self-liberating. Which means that if you just leave it alone and observe it for what it is, it will disappear of its own accord. It will liberate itself. You don't have to do anything apart from relate to it, see it, observe it from a particular perspective. So letting go, um, in this sense, is, um, um, requires a minimal amount of um, intervention. <coughs> we might perhaps translate it as uh, letting be. Uh, letting go already suggests that we want to get rid of something. In fact, in, in most translations from Pali and Sanskrit and Tibetan, this word that I'm translating as letting go is often rendered as abandon. These are things to be abandoned. That's the common English term. 
But I find that very problematic. Abandon, it's very difficult not to associate that with aversion. I don't want this. I don't like this. I want to abandon it, get rid of it. And yet since in the classic account of reactivity, we have greed, hatred, delusion, clearly to, to hate or be averse to um, a thought or a feeling that we uh, can't tolerate is actually buying in to the very reactivity we're seeking to let go of. So, abandon or relinquish uh, seems very close in many ways to another kind of aversion or rejection. And if that's part of the problem, then clearly that sort of language isn't going to be very helpful. So letting go um, is a much softer, gentler relationship. But we might still argue that it's about wanting to be rid of something. Whereas it's not the thing itself that is the problem. That's simply a natural part of the condition of our life. The problem is our relationship to it. And so in this sense, letting be, in German you have this word gelassenheit, gelassen, just leaving things alone. That I think is perhaps closer to what's meant here. There's a, a beautiful little story, again in the same discourse in the Sutta Nipata where we had the pebble and the unfired uh, pot. At the very end of that discourse, you find Mara uh, slinking away, having not had a terribly fruitful a attempt on the Buddha's mind. And he says to himself, I feel just like a crow that was f hovering over a piece of food on the ground and thought, wow, that's a nice piece of food. And then the crow dives down, pierces the food, or tries to pierce the food with its beak, only to discover that the food is actually a piece of stone, and the beak just can't get any purchase on it. And so the crow flies away. And then Mara says, I feel just that way about Gautama. He says, I've followed him now for seven years. And that's, in other words, the six years before the awakening and a year after the awakening. And I just can't get any purchase, any foothold in or on his mind. So in other words, it's not, a, it's not about... Um, uh, getting rid of these things that come up. But it's about finding a way of being with them where they can no longer uh, 
get inside you, as it were, and take over the storyline, or the monologue, or your emotions, or your bodily sensations. The problem, very often, is that if we're not sufficiently alert and present, then in moments of just sort of generic mind-wandering, it's then that these kinds of thoughts and emotions have a, an opening and they take hold. Shantideva, who is an 8th century Mahayana Buddhist monk, uh, describes these reactions, reactivities as like bands of thieves that are lying in wait for an opportunity to break in to the house of your mind in order to steal your treasures. And they break in, he says, as soon as the watchman at the gateway of the senses uh, falls asleep or goes off duty. And that watchman is mindfulness. So mindfulness, in a sense, uh, guards us against the incursions of these uh, powers that once they've taken over like the arrow getting in its poison into the bloodstream uh, it becomes more and more uh, difficult to do much about it so in cultivating a stillness and quietness and clarity moment to moment we're also as it were seeking to refine our attention such that we become more and more uh, sensitized to the very first uh, stirrings of reactivity. And the closer we can somehow get to the source, uh, the greater opportunity we have to just let those thoughts arise and fizzle out. If we fuel them, if we believe in them, if we let them overtake us unconsciously, then our meditation can very often be completely undermined. So that's um, uh, a way we might uh, try to consider what we're doing in our practice today. Again, this applies to any form of um, of, med of meditation, whether, whether we're doing mindfulness or concentration practice or loving-kindness, any exercise that seeks to establish a greater continuity of attention is a both an embrace and a letting go. It integrates the first of these two tasks. So whatever you are choosing to practice today, Periodically, if you find it helpful, uh, just consider what does it mean to let go of reactivity? What does it mean to embrace the situation I'm in? To say yes to what is happening? And that might provide you with, um, again, a larger context within which uh, to develop the particular uh, exercise or practice that you've chosen to do today.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.